everybody, it's John. Welcome back to The Hustle. All right, this week we get to hear from original Violent Femmes drummer, Victor DiLorenzo. I mean, is there that first Violent Femmes album from 1983, that thing belongs in the Smithsonian. It is a piece of history. All of us, I think, grew up with that album being handed down to us at a very pivotal time in our lives. Well, Victor is here to talk about his time in the Violent Femmes, why he's no longer in the Femmes. He's been out of the band for about 20 years or so. And uh, what he's doing now. His current project, his primary musical focus, is a project that he does with a cellist named Janet Shin called 1913. And it's beautiful. And earlier this year, he released an EP called Transophone. We talk about both those things in here. Now, I have to say, technology was not our friend this day. And it kind of breaks my heart. The original recording was pretty glitchy. Yan did his very best to clean it up. It's not perfect. It's better than it was. If you notice some things like not making sense or feeling a little, I don't know, spotty or whatever, that's probably why. But anyway, I wanted to find out more about how the band found their name, found their sound, what it was like be- being in the band all that time, the dynamics, all of it. Victor is such a such a nice man. We are so lucky to hear from Victor. He called me from his home in Milwaukee. So I want to kick this off because I am I am just curious what v- Victor DiLorenzo does every day. What is your, I can tell you're a, you're obviously a hyper creative person. And I want to talk about the new solo EP and 1913 and all these things. But like, what is your, is that your primary job? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Well, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is I grab my phone and I release two tweets right away. <laughs> one about the condition of my coffee for that morning oh. and one about the condition of my head. Got it. So those are the two, those are the two things I do immediately. Then I make myself some coffee. Then mm-hmm. I kind of look over my calendar Mm-hmm. And then I kind of go from there. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll pick up the guitar and strum for a while. Maybe I'll do some reading. Mm-hmm. Maybe I will write something. Maybe I'll return some phone calls. Pretty much what uh, most people do every day, I would think, just kind of attending to their their personal and public business. Mm-hmm. Do you, is your, when you talk about your personal and public business, what percentage of that daily business is made up of Violent Femmes related activity and what percentage of it is made up of whatever your latest and other creative endeavors are? Well, since I last played live with Violent Femmes in 2013, I haven't really had the occasion to really speak about them that much. Mm. Okay. Sometimes a request for an interview and we'll talk about the Femmes, but Usually what I've been talking about as of late is my new EP, Transophone. Yeah, I the reason I, that's why I was asking, because I didn't know, I mean, Violent Femmes obviously cast a huge shadow in your life and, and uh, deservedly so. They're classic, and we're going to talk about that more. But I am curious if, um, you know, if you spend every day having to, like, sign off on T-shirt licensing or... Wendy's commercials, which I'm, I'm going to ask you about later too, or whatever, you know, like dealing with the business of having been in the Violent Femmes, or are you free to, is that pretty much in the past and you're able to focus more completely on your newer endeavors? Well, it's pretty much in the past right now, John. I, I certainly do appreciate what happened 
with Violent Femmes in regards to my career. Yeah. But I, I started out in the show business realm as an actor. That's what I wanted to do ever since I was five years old and mm. became aware of television and film. Mm-hmm. Uh, music was, for me, something that I didn't really become that interested in until I was maybe about 16 years old. But mm. But before that, I was really into the visual image and actors and actresses and directors and producers and and things of that nature. So talking about Violent Femmes hasn't really come up that much mm. for me in the past, say, four or five years. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, good. That's got to be freeing. For somebody who's as you know impulsively creative as it seems like you are, that's probably kind of nice to just focus on the new things and not have to think about what's in the past. I, let's talk about Transophone. You know, I was listening to your solo material and uh, the 1913 stuff, which is gorgeous. And a lot of it reminded me a little bit of Yola Tango. And uh, I don't. I hope that's a good thing. I love Yola Tango, so I mean that as a compliment. It's funny that you brought up Yola Tango because uh, part of the, the Femmes history, uh, our first trips to New York with the band were to be part of a Music for Dozens series that was happening at Folk City. So we've had a relationship with him for a long time, but that you make that comparison is, is certainly something I would welcome. That's good. I love them. And uh, yeah, that sort of, the sort of lo-fi, there's a there's a slight quality in your voice of that reminds me of Ira's. Um, tell me about Transophone. What, how long have you worked on this? What's your, what are your hopes and dreams when you put out new music in 2020? Well, I haven't put out a record under my own name for quite a while because mm. I've been recording and releasing material with 1913, which consists of myself and my partner, Janet Schiff, who plays cello and writes the majority of the material. Mm. But when we were working on what was thought to be the next 1913 record, this was October of last year, 2019, we were working on a particular song and Janet said, well, maybe this should be just your song. And mm. I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, we're working on 1913 material, so I'm not sure I understand what you mean. She goes, well, you know, I primarily like to do instrumental music, and I've made a little concession in having some vocal material on the 1913 records, but mm. maybe this time around you should think about doing something. And I said, wow, would, would that be okay? Would you be offended or hurt if I did that? She goes, no, I think it's something you should get out of your system. And of course, if you want me to, I'll still be a part of it. And I said, well, of course, because mm-hmm. Janet really writes some incredible bass lines. Yeah. So I said, I'd love to put some bass lines to my drum parts. So she goes, of course, I'm there. So I started working on that song, now thinking of it as one of my own pieces of music. And then after that, I, I kind of got the fits and I got the bug to... Mm. to just write some more stuff and had the idea in my mind of doing an EP. So that's kind of how it came about. Otherwise, it would have just been a track on, on a new 1913 record, Got but it. instead, it's Transify. You're never
Now, I know back in the 90s, after leaving the Femmes the first time, uh, pursuing a solo career was kind of in the cards for you. Have you left that behind? I don't know enough about, you know, how you've kept yourself busy the last 20 years or so. Was it, are you equally as happy or, you know, being out there as the front man or do you prefer collaborating with somebody else? I enjoy both. Okay. Uh, They they certainly pull different demands out of oneself. But lately, as I said, I've been working just with Janet in a live Mm -hmm. situation. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's nice to have another person on stage with you because of my acting background, is that I certainly hold in high esteem the idea of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I, I learned very early on when working in theater, and it's something that I try to bring to every other artistic expression that I might be a part of nowadays mm-hmm. or in the future. Mm. You mentioning that, it reminds me, I, I, in getting ready to talk to you, I learned, I don't know if I knew this before, if I did, I forgot, that originally the Femmes were you and Brian that you guys, it sounded like, were sort of the core at first, planning your own thing. And then, not that not that Gordon was an afterthought, but you two sort of led the way and then hired Gordon on. But then Gordon becomes more of like the creative, I don't know, leader, in, I guess, as a songwriter for sure. When it was just you and Brian, what were your plans? What? How did you envision where you would be going? Well, I Brian through a mutual friend, and then we played together in this fellow band for a while. And then he and I decided that we would break off on our own and just have a rhythm section. Mm. And at that point, it was just Brian and Victor's rhythm section. Mm. And then one afternoon, Brian came over to my place where I was living because we rehearsed in the basement of that particular apartment building. And um, I said, hey, have you ever thought of maybe we should give a name to the rhythm section if we want to back up people? (laughs) And he said, yes, because not too long ago, I was talking to this person I knew and they wanted to know if my brother Peter also was involved in music and whether or not he had a band. And and Brian was feeling in a kind of a cocky mood. And he says, yeah, my, my brother plays music and he's got a band too. And then the fellow said, well, what's the band's name? And Brian said, the band is called Violent Fans. <laughs> what a flash of genius that turned yeah. out to be. <laughs> I mean, how, how funny because he... He was just thinking that it was a, a real interesting contradiction in that in Milwaukee, <laughs> there's kind of a slang term for someone who's effeminate. You call him a femme. Right. And then just the idea of a violent femme, like someone having some kind of a conniption fit <laughs> in, in, a, in, a very, in a very overt, funny, humorous way. Yeah. And he, he said, well, what do you think of that name, Violent Femmes? And I said, well, I don't know whether or not I like it, but I, I certainly think people would never forget it. Uh-huh. That's so true. <laughs> so then we... So then that became the name of our rhythm section until uh, we met Gordon, and then Gordon became part of the Violent Femmes. Nice. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. I mentioned Flash of Genius on purpose because I think having the unique sound that you guys came up with and mixed with the odd band name, it made it doubly provocative. It made it even more confusing and interesting and compelling like what am i listening to i was thinking about i remember being a kid and my older cousin had that first violent femmes album
podcast. Do you know what it's like to hate? When it's way down deep inside. Oh God, I hate what's been done to my life. I can rule the pain. I can rule the night. Oh, would have ruined my salvation. Ruin my mind through your pains Rulers of the night Ruin your salvation Ruin your mind Playing it for me and I'm looking at you guys' pictures on the back and I'm thinking... These look like just normal guys. And this is the most unnormal. I'm only like 10 or 11 years old, you know? And it, the, the, this is the most unnormal music I've ever heard. I, Violent Femmes is such a strange name. What am I listening to here? And that has to have been sort of the response of... It's generational. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. You guys are the... I was thinking, you guys... Violent Femmes are the ultimate hand-me-down band... In the sense that every generation lends that album to their younger brothers or siblings and says, check this out. And it's just as fresh and impactful to them today as it was to us in 1983. And then it's also the ultimate rite of passage band where you when you listen to the when you understand the Violent Femmes, there's no going back. You're not the same person you were before. And I don't maybe you hear <laughs> stuff like that a lot, but that's kind of how I. Think of it. There's never been anything like the Violent Femmes. I, I... No, I've, I've heard that countless times. Um, it's a very, very much of a keepsake kind of a recording that people do pass down to members of their family or to friends or, or what have you. I'm very proud of what we did, but it certainly wasn't any conscious design on our part. We were just doing what we felt we wanted to do. And it was something to do for a summer because following that particular summer when we got together to first start playing, Brian and I were going to move to Minneapolis to form a group with another friend of mine. Mm. And Gordon was going to fulfill his dream of, of moving to New York. That's what he wanted to mm. do. Mm. So everything kind of fell in place, much to our chagrin. But it's just this week, 37 years ago, that the first Violent mm -hmm. Femmes album came out. <laughs> so it's it's very uh, apropos that we're we're talking, I guess, this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned that about uh, not meaning or intending necessarily to settle on that sound. Were you were you hearing anything else around you that informed it? That um, did it yes, sound and feel natural when it came out? We appreciated a lot of very extreme music at that time, not only in the world of jazz, but in the world of country music, mm -hmm. the world of rock, the world of blues. But Gordon, he brought a whole other list of criterion to the table in that he liked a lot of country music and he really loved the Velvet Underground. That was one mm -hmm. of his big influences. Yeah. So the combination of the three of us putting our heads together, which was also very important in our, our growth as musicians and as performers, because we did a lot of playing on the street. We did a lot of busking for people. Mm -hmm. And in that way, we got to learn a lot about ourselves musically and also how to deal with an audience, especially an audience that was prone to just stopping for a second and then to continue mm -hmm. walking by. 
So you had to figure out how could we make these people stop and stay and listen to us for a while and maybe have pity on us and give us maybe a dollar or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it true that you guys were busking in front of a, the venue where the pretenders were going to be playing and James Honeyman Scott sort of discovered you and asked you guys to come in and open the show or whatever? Yeah, that's an absolute true uh, kind of a Schwab's drugstore kind of a story for us. <laughs> Where we were playing underneath the marquee of the Oriental Theater here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And little did we know there was a, a band going to be playing there that night. The three of us didn't really know anything about. Uh. But anyway, we were just doing our normal busking underneath the marquee because it had a certain kind of an ambiance that was really good for playing our music underneath this marquee. Mm. So we're playing and the door opens to the theater and this fellow walks out and he stops and he listens to us for about, I don't know, a couple minutes. And then he continues walking to the corner where the Oriental drugstore was. And then when we have a break in between songs, he says, hey, you guys are really good. You kind of sound like this band that's breaking in England right now called the Stray Cats. Mm. And we said, "Oh, oh, that sounds nice." Uh, you know, we didn't we didn't know who the Stray Cats were either. And uh, he said, uh, "Yeah, I just I just like the music. Keep up the good work, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll see you again someday." And we said, "Yeah, okay, fantastic." So uh, he goes back into the theater. We continue playing. But maybe two minutes later, the doors open up again, and this whole group of people come out, and they're leaning on a parked car, listening to us. And we had just played this song, Girl Trouble, which has this great refrain of Girl Trouble, I've got Girl Trouble up the ass. Mm-hmm. Have mercy on me, I got girl trouble up the ass. Have mercy on me, people, girl trouble up the ass. One of the one of the people to us was this woman, and she just starts laughing crazily <laughs> at that line. And so mm-hmm. she comes up to us afterwards. She goes, "Hey, uh, really love what you guys are doing. What are you doing tonight?" Mm-hmm. And we said, uh, "Well, probably just be playing somewhere, or I'm not sure exactly what we'll be doing, but we'll be doing something." She said, "Well, would you like to open for us tonight?" Mm-hmm. And we said, "Well, open." for us who's who's us and she said well we're the we're the band that's playing here tonight we're called the pretenders we can't pay you anything but you can eat anything 
that's backstage or have uh, any beer or, or anything mm-hmm. that's back there and enjoy yourself or the show. And we said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So we went from playing for change <laughs> and for passerbys mm-hmm. to playing uh, for like a thousand seat uh, venue filled with people. So where does it go from so, there? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a absolutely, it's an absolutely true story, but yeah. I mean, nothing really changed. It just okay. makes it for a nice story. Got it. Okay, that's what I wondered. Yeah, and if you were busking on the street, were you also then playing club shows around Milwaukee? Did you have a little bit of a following, or were you just busking? We play at some coffee shops. We play at little diners. We play at people's parties. There was one club we played with a full rock complement, mm. where Brian played electric bass, Gordon played electric guitar, and I played a sit-down drum set. So, so we could incorporate our style into other approaches, but but mostly we we like the idea of just being uh, troubadours on the streets of Milwaukee, just playing for the people. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to know what the best thing about that debut album to you is, and what's the worst thing. And the reason I say that is because it's a monolith in in music. I mean. Most people who are Violent Femmes fans probably may only own that album, and it and they and it's it's something everybody should have because of how subversive it is. What's is that? What's the best thing about that, and what's the worst thing about that? I don't, I don't know if there is a a worst thing about it. Okay. I'm, I'm very I'm very proud of that record, and also I think it's, it stands the test of time because there's nothing else like it. If no. you imagine that time in music hair bands were really the big thing mm-hmm. and to have these three dorkadelic psychedelic <laughs> farmers for it to be appreciated in a worldwide vein i'm i'm very proud of that and i don't i don't feel embarrassed or or i, have, I don't have any regrets about that record at all and i can't think of a worse thing about it okay. because because I, I like all the music on it mind you we had a lot of other material material that ended up on the second album hello ground available at that time i had me a wife i had me some daughters i tried so hard i never knew still waters nothing to eat and nothing to drink nothing for a man to do but sit around So that was a choice on our part, just to have that selection of music that's on the first album. Mm. Yeah, when I ask what's the worst thing, I wondered if if there's any kind of, not a regret, but if there's a sort of uh, sadness about it overshadowing all the other great stuff you guys did. You know, it, uh, 
Blind Leading the Naked, Three, Why Do Birds Sing. These are all great albums too. They're just less familiar to most people. And I wondered if that was, uh, if that ever was kind of a bummer or if you're fine with that. Well, I would have to answer it in that things can only be brand new to you one time. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so people have heard that record. They appreciate it for what it is. If they went on then to explore more of our catalog, I think they would find that the spirit of that first album kind of transcends. But I certainly don't don't think it it stands out as something that's uniquely different from the rest of our canon of music. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I am curious how you got Jerry Harrison to pro to produce your third album. that we would ask Jerry to work with us. Mm. Jerry had uh, had uh, done a few little productions here and there, and we all got along with him and figured he would be the best uh, person to work with us. And, and Warner Brothers was really into the idea, so so it all made sense for, for those reasons. Yeah, I bet. You know, after that, three, I feel like, goes into more of sort of the original acoustic-y vibe, but then um, Why Do Birds Sing sounds more modernized. And I wondered if you uh, if you went into the creation of those albums with those intentions. I would say that the the last record you mentioned, the Why Do Birds Sing record, that I almost look at that as our Los Angeles record.
had the effects of, of that city dripping into that record. Boy, it's I don't know when I when I think about those albums. In my mind, they all kind of show up as one album. If mm. you can understand that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't I don't really look at them in different stages. I just like to think of our music as as one big body of work. I could see maybe that. just separated by a few years here and there. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to differentiate the records uh, one from another in that regard. Mm. Okay, I am curious. One thing I like to ask people that I have on here, I know that asking about favorites is not people's favorite question, but I, I wondered if there are moments that you are particularly proud of. Most of these songs, if not all of them, have largely Gordon as the primary songwriter. But I wondered if there was a moment in, you know, a song, even a a deep track where you think, you know what, I came up with this one part or I I was stuck with, couldn't decide what to do. And I came up with this great drum riff or whatever. And I've always been really proud of that. Not enough people know about it. I can answer that for you in that I was lucky enough to have one of my songs featured on one of the Violent Femmes records. Mm -hmm. There's a bonus track that was only available in Europe called World Without Mercy. When your words have no meaning and you're known as no one Am I someone to you? Someone to turn to Even when others turn away even though others turn away When history blurs And every man, woman, and child Are left outside With no phones to be dialed You can't call me, I can't call you You can't call me, I can't call you In a world Without mercy, people dying outside your door. In a world without mercy, you don't have to lie anymore. You don't have to cry anymore. When laughter loses all its humor, and the joy and it was a song that I had written. And Brian plays acoustic guitar on it. Members of the Milwaukee Symphony are playing strings on it. The famous eccentric musician Sigmund Snowpeck III, mm-hmm. another Milwaukee musician. And Jerry Harrison played and also helped to arrange the track. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, that is a song I'm very proud of. But I guess for a lot of people's intents and purposes, they would not consider that to be a real violent femme song because Gordon's not singing it. But Gordon and Brian both liked the song and that's why it ended up released. But I like the, the, what we did with the cover versions. Uh, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me by Culture Club, I thought was was a good um, representation of that song. Inside my 
And we heard years later that that Boy George really, really loved our version of it. Really nice. Uh, yeah. So, so that was good because that was almost like a song that's already established, mm-hmm. and now we're going to put our spin on it. Yeah. So that was a nice challenge, that, especially for Brian and I, because what we would usually do, our, our part as far as the Violent Femmes machinery was concerned, would be that Gordon would bring in material, and then Brian and I would help to arrange it or, or augment it in some way. Mm. Okay. Um, so what, uh, what caused you to leave? I'm curious, the first time. I think it was just a breakdown in communication between the three individuals. Uh, wanting to do something different, mm-hmm. tired of the same old thing in that regard. Mm-hmm. Also, I had started out in show business as an actor, mm-hmm. and I was feeling the yearning to do some stage uh, material, and I had, I had just acquired a very important manager agent in Chicago, so I was looking to go and uh, do auditions, which I did. In fact, one of my major auditions I did was for a role in uh, the Untouchables. The movie uh, The Untouchables with Kevin Costner and stuff. Yes, I was. I was reading for the part of the young reporter. Yeah, I would have actually had. A, I had a scene with Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I love that movie. Yeah, I just watched it again recently. Yeah. Oh, how funny! Yeah, uh, Lynn Stallmaster, the famous casting agent. He really liked me, and and uh, he he led me into to. Uh, to meet with Brian De Palma, and he, he gave me a real good introduction. Uh, here's a young title actor from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who is here today to read for you, Brian. He's very excited to do so, and here is Victor DiLorenzo. And so De Palma's uh, looking at me, and his assistant says, uh, DiLorenzo, is that with an E or, or an I? And I said, it's with an E, like De Palma. <laughs> and uh, and nice. so, <laughs> So I'm being a jackass, and uh, Brian De Palma looks up from his notes at me and kind of gives me a little smirk. Uh-huh. But I read for him, and it, it went well. And like I said, I got a couple callbacks, but unfortunately, I lost out to nepotism. Oh. One of the producers, one of the producer's cousins, got the role. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, I was that's... close, though. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I I don't know much about your acting career. Have you appeared in other movies or things that we would know? I don't think anything you would really know. A lot of things coming out of Milwaukee. Okay. Um, I guess my claim to fame was I was with a theater company here. I just uh, coming out of college, I auditioned and got into a theater company called Theater X. And the reason I joined the company was the company was looking for two new members, a female and a male. Did the audition and I made the cut. And then I studied with Willem uh, a part that he was performing with the company at that time. Wild. What a career you've had, Victor. A little bit of everything, you know? A little bit of everything, but it's funny. When I was having I was having dinner with, with Willem in New York about maybe six, seven years ago, and I was arguing with him that I made the wrong decision, that I stayed in I should have stayed in acting and followed him out to New York. Hmm. And he of course said, No, you're you're a jackass. You've had a great <laughs> career. <laughs> I mean your fame is worldwide, so yeah. So stop complaining. That's true. So it was it was a it was a constant battle of the grass is always greener on the other side kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. I think we all feel that way. You know, even if we're doing the thing we love, there's always something that we were do- we wish we were doing 
more or more often or more of or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah. Okay. When you look back on the Violent Femmes chapter of your life, what is your favorite memory? Well, to mine, I'll tell you one right now that that I was just thinking about a, a couple of weeks ago because it was just uh, the anniversary, too, of us playing at Carnegie Hall. Mm. And I'll never forget being on the stage at Carnegie Hall. We had sold out the concert. And the reason that they allowed us to play Carnegie Hall was this was right before they were going to do a major renovation inside. So they didn't mind if things would get screwed up a little bit. <laughs> If, mm. if the audience got a little unruly and the chairs or what have you. Uh-huh. So, so it's okay that Violent Femmes could play there. So anyway, we're on stage playing, and we're starting to play a piece of ours called Black Girls. I dig the black girls. Oh, so much more than the white girls. I was so pleased to learn they were faster. Guess, 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 ooh, I'm after. Along comes a little faggot white boy. Look, look, look for some kind of joy. They come around so queer and quiet. In the middle of this particular song, there's a drum feature. Mm -hmm. So I'm on the stage of Carnegie Hall, playing my drums, closing my eyes, getting ready to begin this drum feature in the middle of the song. And I'm thinking, okay, here's my time to be brilliant. I'm going to do this drum solo. Mm -hmm. So it gets to the point. I start playing the solo. It's going well. And then all of a sudden, I feel someone tapping me on the shoulder and I open my eyes and I look and it's Brian and he goes Vic hold on a second so the audience have, had come up on stage which of course is a big no-no mm -hmm. in Carnegie Hall and so to leave the stage go back to the dressing room and then there was this big altercation with the ushers and the audience about hey if, if, if people don't stay in their seats we're we're keeping the show we were able to carry on and, and we finished the concert and had a, had a great night there, but that's always one of my fond memories. Wow. That's great. That's great. Um, okay. So you eventually come back and, uh, but then leave again, I think around 2013 or so. I, I, maybe I have the dates wrong. And it sounds to me when I read about that, it sounds like you had almost like a philosophical or an idealistic issue with where you felt the femmes were going and that, or that they had become something that you didn't want to be a part of. If I have that right, what is it exactly that you mean? Are they too commercial? Were they, is it too, is, is there some selling out happening or how is this, how is this not jiving with your ideals? 
Well, the way I thought about it, John, was when I was approached in 2013 to rejoin the Femmes for a series of shows, I figured it would be a good thing to do not only for the audience, but also at that time, I figured it would be good for me too. Mm -hmm. And also uh, for the other two guys. So maybe we could put together some of our past differences Mm -hmm. and have a nice payday and and give people the ability to to enjoy Violent Femmes music again. So I said, okay, I'll I'll do two shows at Coachella with you, do another show in Napa Valley, and then we'll do one more show here in Milwaukee uh, at the big music festival we have every year here called Summerfest. Mm -hmm. So I went into it with all the right intentions, and I was hoping that maybe if these four shows were successful, if if possible, make another recording. Hmm. But what I found when I got back with the other two guys was uh, things had kind of changed in a way that I really couldn't see myself being a part of. Hmm. I felt that there were money issues that I wasn't being dealt fairly with. Mm-hmm. And also, I had other things going on in my life. And I've known from the past that when you sign up for Violent Femmes, it can be a very uh, gut-wrenching and soul-searching and very antagonistic atmosphere to be a part of. And I just felt that it would be better maybe to just do those four shows after I had done the four shows. Hmm. That's, uh, That's a shame. I feel like, and this is my own feelings about some of these things, especially now with touring being the lifeblood of you know, making any money as a rock star these days, that um, bands like, legacy bands like the Violent Femmes are sort of on victory laps in a way. Like I saw them, I've seen you guys several times over the years, but I saw you most recently, or them most recently, with the with Echo and the Bunny Men. And that was a big, it was a big show. It was kind of an odd pairing, but it was a big show. Lots of people were there, it was sold out. And I think I want my favorite artist to be able to capitalize on all those years of hard work. It would be so great if Victor was there and that he could just play the occasional show and cash a big check and then go back and do 1913 and all the other, you know, fun things that he wants to do. And it's unfortunate that that's not the case, I guess, you know, it is very unfortunate. It is unfortunate because I, I feel the same way, but it it just doesn't work out that way for us. Hmm. There's just something about the three personalities who are very, very strong and different individuals that sometimes our minds don't mesh together in a way that I would like them to. Hmm. And certainly within those first four years of our existence, we were all kind of a three musketeers situation. Yeah. But uh, as years went by, things like ego, greed, animosity, anger, I mean, all these horrible things that figure into a lot of situations involving groups of creative individuals we certainly were not exempt from that and and we suffer from that uh, to this day hmm. is uh, gordon being the primary songwriter is that a, a a big instigator for a lot of this because i'm guessing he makes most of the money when wendy's comes calling and wants to use a song on a commercial and everything else well he has certainly benefited <clears throat> the most from violent times it's a shame. I love you guys, and I love the three of you. And as a fan, uh, it would be so great to have, like like we were just saying, the three of you out there doing the victory lap that you deserve. But at least you have other things that going on that are 
that sound like they feed your soul even more. Speaking of feeding your soul, I want you to tell me about working with Mo Tucker. I want to know what that was like. Oh, Mo Tucker. I love Mo. Uh, but one more thing I just wanted to say. I'm the biggest Violent Femmes fan as well. Good. And I, I miss it quite a bit. But at the same time, I mean, if you hit your head and self in the head with a hammer once you don't really want to do it repeatedly right. and, and and i feel that now if i go back to violent films that's kind of what i would be doing yeah uh, but at the same time my dream would be if the three of us could get back together make a brand new record in secret mm. unleash it on the public and then go on a world tour with just the three of us no other back musicians just the original trio the three of us bass, guitar, and drums. That would really make me crazy. That sounds like heaven. I would think the majority of Violent Femmes fans would want that exact same thing. Why is that I so difficult people, to achieve? I think people would love that too. I would just like to showcase the power and the uh, uniqueness of that original trio yeah. again. Because yeah. that's why people came to us in the first place, because we've, we were so different. We were able to make such a grand noise with just three people playing mostly acoustic instruments. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just thinking so often, you know, bands go out and they play cert a certain album in its entirety, you know? I saw the Pixies do right. Doolittle and I saw Rush do Moving Pictures and stuff like that. You get the original Violent Femmes on a tour doing the original Violent Femme album start to finish and the additional hits afterwards, that is like, that's printing money right there. And it satisfies, <laughs> it's, it, it is, and it satisfies so many millions of fans out there. Maybe that's not exactly what you want artistically, but man, that would nail it, you know, as far as just creating an event, something like that. Well, well I think what you have to do now, John, is, is circulate the petition Get some, get some signatures here and, and uh, spearhead this whole movement. I'm proud to do that, actually. I would do that. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I, I, uh, I know you've got a million other things going on, so I don't want you to feel like you got to talk about the Femmes all the time. But I am curious about a Mo Tucker story. Oh, my God, Mo Tucker. I love Mo Tucker. Let me see. Okay, the first time I met Mo Tucker... The Femmes were playing in, hmm, I think it was Phoenix. I know it was in Arizona, but I'm not exactly sure it was Phoenix. But we're playing there, and supposedly we had heard through the grapevine, Brian had heard this, that Mo Tucker's daughter was a huge Femme. So she uh, came with her daughter to our show, hmm. and we became fast friends from that point on. And I even convinced her that night which was something that I guess she had never done since she had left the Velvet Underground, I convinced her to come and sit in with us and, and play the tom-tom on a couple songs. Mm. Like we had a blast. Yeah. And then I just I kept in touch with Mo, and that led to uh, doing some recording with her. She uh, did a record in New York City uh, called I Spent a Week There the Other Night. Stars, my head's on the ground. 
I was part of that record uh, playing drums and helping to co-produce. And then she also uh, invited Brian Ritchie to come and play bass. And then Sterling was playing guitar. And then John Cale played some viola. So essentially what you had was the Violent Femmes rhythm section with the Velvet Underground. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. So if you if you find that record, that's what's represented there. Okay. I will. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And then consequently, I went out and I did some touring with Mo. In fact, I did the last bit of touring that, that Sterling did before he became uh, too ill to, mm. to be on the road anymore. Wow. What a career you've had. But I mean, I mean in a room with with Maureen Tucker yeah. and Sterling Morrison talk about the Velvet Underground yes. I mean that's what I listened to when I was a kid growing up in Racine Wisconsin 16 <laughs> years old on my stereo and now I'm talking to two of the members so you can imagine that was that was more than a dream come true for I me I believe it I believe it I'm curious you know you you saying that I'm curious when people find out if they don't know and they find out you're in the violent, you're in the violent femmes or whatever, do you, what are some of the interesting stories people have told you about what your music means to them? Because I'm guessing a band like the femmes holds a really special and unique place in a lot, in the hearts of a lot of people, you know, they have very strong feelings. No one's passive about the femmes. Everyone has a, a strong reaction to this band based on how they sound. Correct. Well, some of the stories I've heard uh, are, are very personal stories where a particular song or a record really helps someone uh, mm. during a different, difficult time in their lives. Uh, other times, uh, people uh, just enjoy the music uh, in that regard and, and, and don't have any real personal attachment. Right. So I, I don't really have any real... Uh, particular life-changing stories that mm. I've, I've heard from people. I know that people are very happy when they meet me just because for them, I think it's almost a psychic doorway back into their childhood. Yeah. And, and so you can feel young again. It's before we talked uh, uh, today here, John, I uh, literally down to the minute I was watching on Turner classic movies. They were showing a hard day's night uh, and when I watch that movie, I feel like I'm I'm 16 again. Mm -hmm. And and I think uh, probably people that are fans of the Femmes, when they meet one of us, they have a whole head rush of, of memories coming back to them yeah. that that probably deal with all different kinds of aspects of their lives. I, I want to ask a nerdy question for a second. Who is the little girl on the cover? Did you know her? Is that a photograph? Is that a picture you commissioned? Where'd that come from? Uh, our manager at that time, Mark Van Hecke, he had a friend. I think she got in touch with us not too many years ago. And I figure, I, I, I can't remember how old she would be now, but quite quite a bit grown up from that. Yeah, picture. yeah. Wow, okay. And then uh, similarly, Hollowed Ground, Who is that a photograph of a, I don't even know what that is. Is that a, I imagine it being in a cemetery or something, but what is that? That's a piece of folk that was found by Mark Trilling, who was a financial manager at Slash Records, the record label that we're on. And he had found that picture, or he might have taken that picture, and it was, I think, at a folk art museum in Los Angeles. So that particular little statue or wood carving 
is a slave's representation of his wealthy landowner. Oh, wow. Okay. I had another question about, you know, Gordon wove into his songwriting so many religious themes and spirituality. And I, I believe, I believe he came, I believe his dad was a preacher or he had thought about becoming a preacher or something like that. How did that jive with you? I mean, it just adds to the overall weirdness, the tapestry of uniqueness and weirdness that make up the Femmes. Was that ever an issue for you? Were you fine with, you know, Jesus walking on the water or did that feel like a little strange? father was a pastor. Gordon was raised in the church. I was raised a Catholic. I'm not sure what Brian, if Brian was a Lutheran or I can't remember. But anyway, when I was growing up, I went to some Baptist music. I didn't have any problem with it. As a matter of fact, I enjoyed a lot of gospel music. Me too. I love it. So when Gordon started, so when Gordon started bringing in this material, I really had no aversion to it. Uh, Brian had a little bit of a problem with it, but because the underlying factor was that these were indeed good songs, mm -hmm. we decided that that we would play the material, and we would just see people's reaction. I'm sure some people were a little bit disappointed, some people were confused, and yes, it, it, it certainly did add to the weirdness quotient, mm -hmm. but, uh, but I, I always liked that we could just indulge our musical tastes in any any direction we we wanted to go. Mm. I like that too. Um, I was also curious about MTV because I don't remember. In fact, I think the first MTV, the first Femmes video I ever saw on MTV might have been Nightmares. Nope. 
No, the first video we did for MTV uh, was for Gone Daddy Gone. Oh, really? Maybe I was too young or something. I don't remember what I'm what I'm getting at. My question is that I it doesn't seem to me like MTV was as pivotal in breaking the femmes as they were a band like Culture Club or somebody else that you mentioned that we talked about earlier. Was maybe well, I just wasn't really, paying attention. They really did help us. Well, you know, John, they really did help us in that they had a show on every weekend called 120 Minutes. Good point. Yes. And and they and they featured a lot of alternative music, and that's how we yeah. got our videos on MTV was through that show. They yeah. weren't really played in primetime MTV television, but, but uh, certainly we were, we were featured quite a bit. We did interviews and they would yeah. always play our new videos on 120 minutes. So, yeah. so I think that really helped in getting us across to the, to the college crowd and also to uh, people that were interested in this new thing uh, referred to mm -hmm. as alternative music. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. I was a loyal 120 minute watcher. I um, so yeah, they would have they would have caught into the femmes pretty pretty closely. I would think. What um, when you look back on those days, were there any? Did you? I imagine you, you talk about meeting, you know, playing with the Velvet Underground earlier. I'm guessing you're probably meeting some heroes. I don't know who your musical heroes are, but were you interacting with them? Were you playing shows with them? Were you befriending them? What were those years like? Well, we had a lot of contemporaries that we, we were friends with. I mean, people like the Pixies and, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the Dream Syndicate, the Go-Go's. All, all the people that were, that were happening at the same time, we, we come to meet, especially because spending time in Los Angeles, you tend to run into people. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to say that most of my heroes that I met came out of the jazz world. I mean, one of the biggest thrills of my life was getting to meet Ornette Coleman. Oh, and wow. Having, having Ornette Coleman extend his hand to me. Wow. And while he's shaking my hand, telling me that he loves my music. Wow. And that that was certainly something that had a big effect on me and, and my yes. life because I started out as a, well, I still am, a, I'm a jazz drummer. Mm -hmm. That's how I was raised in the tradition. That's how I got all my brush playing together. That circumstance of, of meeting Ornette Coleman was was just fantastic, and then then I also got to meet uh, Cecil Taylor, who was also another one of my heroes. Wow. He was backstage at one of the Femme shows when we played the Beacon Theater in New York, 
and I got to meet him there. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm trying to think of other rock people that I met that uh, maybe well, impressed Coleman, me. Other than, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and he was he was such a gentleman, just a a very effusive, wide open person, and he just floored me and stunned me when he when he said he loved the Violent Femmes music. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was it was just mind bending to me. Yeah. Yeah, I bet that would freak me out too. Um, okay, well, when we the, to get him, we tried to get him. We tried to get Ornette to come and play on one of our records, but his fee to play on one song was ten thousand dollars. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I love information like that. That is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! Okay. Oh, Short good story, Ornette. Sorry, Ornette, maybe next time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, okay. Uh, before Corona happened, obviously, I, I was curious how often Me. you play out with 1913. Is that your, yes. other than Transophone uh, now, obviously, 1913 seems like your primary musical focus. It's beautiful, by the way. I loved it. And I... Thank you. It was new to me, and I liked it so much. Tell us about it. very proud of the 1913 recordings and I think our live performances are nothing short of exquisite. Nice. I have a very good relationship with Janet Schiff. And I had met Janet on some freeform improvisational gigs here in Milwaukee oh, maybe about seven, eight years ago. And then uh, I didn't really keep, keep up with her, keep track of what she was doing. But one Saturday afternoon she calls me out of the blue and she said, hey, I'm playing at Circle A tonight, which is a small club here in Milwaukee. Mm. She said, would you like to sit in with me? And I said, yeah, sure, that would be fun. What do you want me to bring? And she goes, well, just bring whatever you want. So I said, well, I think I'll just bring a snare drum and a cymbal. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. And she goes, yeah, that'll be fantastic. So I get to the show, and there's a full drum set set up. Mm. I set up besides the drum set, and then I meet the other drummer. I didn't realize, but there was another drummer on the gig, Scott Johnson, and we play the show with Janet, play a couple sets of music, and it goes very well. Oh. 
music. I was just playing along, but I was very happy mm-hmm. that this other drummer was there because I could kind of work off of what he was doing. So after the show, I, I said to, to Scott, the other drummer, man, I'm really glad you were here because I was a little bit scared. I didn't know what I was going to do if, you know, playing music I'd never heard before. I don't mind doing that for a song or two, but, you know, for a whole night, this would be something brand new. And he goes, oh, my God, I thought you had played before. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, you mean you never played Janet either? And he goes, no. So, so Janet had pulled a fast one on both of us and brought us in there and just had us improvise. And then, and then that started uh, 1913 as a trio. And we played together as a trio for the next, I think, about three, four years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Scott had some health problems with his back, so he had to drop out. And then Janet and I played with a couple other drummers, but then we decided, just for economy's sake and also the fact that it was a lot easier to get things done when you only had to take two people's opinions into consideration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we just decided that we would reduce it just down to the core, which was Janet and I. What does 1913 mean? 1913 is the year that Janet's cello was made in Romania. Ah, okay. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, do you play enough shows? I mean, does that, does that pay your bills? You know, whatever you guys are doing, is that your primary way of making a living these days? Well, I have done other projects playing music with other people, which I get paid for. Uh-huh. And also, I, I do receive royalties from Violent Femmes. Mm-hmm. So I, I have I have a number of different revenue streams. Okay. We, t- we try to cover so, sort of the business side on here very sensitively because it, we just I find it really interesting to find, to learn how professional musicians like you guys, especially legacy musicians, you know, make a living over time, especially with the business being what it is today. It's so different, you know? Right. So, okay. Sure. Well, um, I don't know. I just, uh, I'm really grateful that you talked to me, Victor, because if you can't tell, I mean, I've just, I'm one of the, <laughs> one of the millions who were, I don't know, changed, I guess, by the music you guys put out. And to learn the things that you've done since, the solo albums and the 1913 and Transophone and everything, is all just as good. It, it's so heartening as a fan. So anyway, thank you for all the good you've put out in the world. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you telling me that because a lot of times one doesn't get to hear things like that. Yeah. And you forget that people around the world really value something that you've not only done in the past, but that you continue to try and do yeah. at a very high level. Yeah, of, that's uh, it. So, so I, uh, I love hearing stuff like that, John, and I... I'm, I'm always happy and, and, and never disappointed when I talk. So, yes, Good. thank you. <laughs> thank you. There you have it, Victor DiLorenzo. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it turned out okay. Thank you, Victor. You were the best. I want to close it out with another song from 1913. Their stuff is beautiful. Hop on Spotify, hop on whatever, and check out 1913, two words spelled out, and transophone. Okay? Again, if you like, like I said, Yola Tango and bands like that, I think you'll get off on transophone. Now, next week's guest is the fourth member of the immediate family. It is bassist Lee Sklar. 
one of the most recorded bassists in history. That's Lee Sklar. That's next week. I think you guys will enjoy it. You know by now you can find our page on Facebook. You can like it. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And we weren't able to get out that big uh, deep dive last weekend, so it should be forthcoming this weekend, um, assuming our schedules work out. Uh, I think you're going to love this. So check us out later this week for a deep dive that will, it's pretty awesome. Okay. Thanks everybody. We love you.